Well, aloha from Maui, Hawaii, and welcome to the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School. This is Michael Benner, your host every Sunday afternoon for this live event. And if you're listening by podcast or streaming audio, thanks for checking us out. Hope you can join us live one of these Sundays, 1 o'clock Pacific Time, 4 o'clock in the East Coast of the United States, 21 hours GMT in the winter, which is 20 hours GMT during daylight savings time in the summer. Today our topic is the one and the many. This is not only an ancient concept in philosophy, it may be one of the most fundamental concepts in all of philosophy, because it speaks to the relationship of the creator to its creation. Now, when I say creator, it certainly includes all the religious concepts of God, but goes beyond that to non-religious and philosophical concepts of the human ability to see unity in the presence of separation. For example, you have seen many tables in your life, a kitchen table, a dining room table, a coffee table, maybe a desk in a classroom, countless tables. My computer where I'm sitting now is sitting upon a table, and it's unlike any other table I've ever seen. It's a very unique table that my computer sits on. And if you consider the set of all tables, uh, you could sit back, close your eyes, and dream up dozens, scores, perhaps hundreds of images in your mind of what a table looks like. And yet the word table is a word that unifies all of those many tables. And you're okay with that. We're able to talk about a table as if it were one thing. When in fact, you know, most tables are very different from each other. You might be able to find two tables that are alike, maybe manufactured in the same factory or fashioned, crafted by the same person. But you understand the point. Our ability to conceptualize a single set of diverse elements, a single set of diverse elements, that ability that we have suggests that there can be one force or one source behind all seemingly separated things in the universe. This is uh, usually ascribed to Aristotle or Plato. Plato never really used the phrase one and the many, though he talked about one over many. That's about as close as you'll get in his actual writings. Many others have written, however, about this uh, philosophical conundrum, uh, this challenge to people. Um, and again, I, I've already suggested it in many ways that the one in the many, whether you see it as um, um, 
finite and infinite and um, uh, or a relationship of, uh, of space over matter, a relationship of spirit to matter. Um, there's a lot of different ways of structuring this. But let me mention just a few people, uh, philosophers like uh, Nietzsche, who um, got a couple of quotes I found on the Internet. Um, he's talking about the ancient Greeks. Nietzsche writing in 1880 about the ancient Greeks, saying that well, their philosophy seems to begin with this whole idea. And he credits it not to Plato, but to Thales. And um, he concludes, Nietzsche that is, that um, this generalization of the one to the many was a metaphysical dogma that um, had its origin in mystical intuition. And Nietzsche says, which together with the uh, ever-renewed endeavors to express it better is found in all philosophies, the proposition that everything is one. The proposition that everything is one. Uh, Leibniz says pretty much the same thing. He says in 1670, reality cannot be found except in one single source because of the interconnection of all things with one another. That's Leibniz. In the mid-19th century, early 20th century, Bradley said, we may agree perhaps to understand by uh, metaphysics an attempt to know reality as against mere appearance or the study of the first principle of ultimate truths or uh, the effort to comprehend the universe not simply piecemeal or by fragments but somehow as a whole. And in the early 18th century, Berkeley, George Berkeley, that nothing seems of more importance toward erecting a firm system of sound and real knowledge which may be proof against the assaults of skepticism that to lay the beginning in a distinct uh, explication, there's a new word for a lot of us, a distinct explication of what is meant by a thing, a reality, or existence, for in vain, he says, shall we dispute concerning the real existence of things or pretend to any knowledge thereof, so long as we have not fixed the meaning of these words. The idea, the problem of the one and the many, again. In the newsletter that I put out this week, I talked about the second rubric or the second principle of the Emerald Tablet of Hermes Trismegistus, and this is ancient Hermetic or Egyptian philosophy. These are the pyramid builders, right? And the second rubric can be translated in a couple of, well, several different ways, perhaps many different ways, but it essentially boils down to as above, so below. And that's the way it's referred to most simply. As it is above, so it is below. And then it goes on to repeat it in reverse. 
And so, too, as it is below, so it is above. And then there's one more phrase. For the miracles of the one. All right. So what it's saying is that the physical reality of Earth, the solar system, the galaxy, the universe, is a reflection somehow of a single unified source. As above, so below, and as it is below, so it is above. If physical dense is a reflection of its source, then we can learn something of the creator of all things by studying the world around us. We may, in a more religious or spiritual sense, learn something of God by studying ourselves. And this is the ancient Greek admonition, know thyself. According to Plato, inscribed over the oracle to Delphi in ancient Greece, going back 1,500 years before Plato. Imagine going into the oracle, and on the way in, it says over the, over the entrance, this is really about you. <laughs> know thyself. Okay? And of course, we have the famous... Uh, admonition in Shakespeare, to thine own self be true. Um, Lao Tzu, the Chinese philosopher, said, one who knows others is wise, but he who knows himself is enlightened. This has always been the wisdom. Why? What, what is it about knowing yourself that is so important? Well, this idea that you are a reflection of God, that there's God in you. Indeed, what artist, what painter, what sculptor, what cartoonist, <laughs> what actor could somehow avoid having themselves reflected in their work? It's impossible and undesirable. We want to... Even if we're an actor playing a role or an artist fashioning a sculpture of some sort or a painting or a drawing, how could we keep ourselves out of it? I mean, we couldn't. So that God is in its creation, that divinity is imminent. This is the way a philosopher would say it, that God is imminent and transcendent. This is a very important concept, and it's not found in much of what's called religion, especially uh, the Judeo-Christianity that dominates the Western Hemisphere. The reason that God imminent, or divinity in all things, that everything is sacred, that you are a reflection of God and your worst enemy is a reflection of God, things you like, are of God, and so-called evil is of God, for nothing could exist outside of God. This is a very difficult challenge for people. Now, evil is within God. You say, wait a minute, hold on. 
not feeling comfortable with that. A friend of mine came to me once and was talking about a mutual friend who was very ill. And I said, well, maybe something good can come from the illness. Because all things are of God. All things work together for good. And my friend bit flipped and said, illness, sickness, cancer is not of God. It's disease. It's of Satan. It's evil. So the problem we have in Western religious philosophy in particular is the idea that evil exists outside of God. God is good, evil is not, so it exists outside of God. Well, that leaves you with the dilemma of what kind of God is this that is not whole? What kind of God has something existing outside of it that is not part of the one life? or the one thing. That could be your cosmology, right? But now there's sort of two gods. You have an opportunity to worship God as good or evil as bad. You've created this duality in terms of the spiritual source of things. Now we understand duality in form. In the physical dense world, the material world, is very dualistic with its polarities, positive and negative. It's yin and yang, so to speak. It's genders. The idea of right versus wrong is laid on top of that. But everything that is energetic, and Einstein proved that all matter is really energy in form, Everything that's energy, or spirit for that matter, has its polarity. Anything that vibrates or oscillates has a peak and a trough. It has an amplitude that's positive and negative and goes back and forth. That's the origin of the yin and the yang, the, the origin of the duality of things. But God is understood to be at rest. God in all religious philosophies doesn't change, is unmovable, eternal, and infinite, and could not be vibrating back and forth. <laughs> its creation could, and that's where the dualism comes from. But to consider that there is a, a dualistic source is really a challenge to philosophers who tend to, again, fall back on the idea that there has to be a single unifying principle behind all things, the one and the many. Everything has to come ultimately from one thing somehow. And that has to be inclusive. It has to be a single one. <laughs> we have a little problem with language. There is in the English language in the use of the word one, the idea that it could be this one or that one, or it might be that one over there, you know, this one is opposed to that one. It's a funny way to use the number one, isn't it? This one is opposed to that one. 
or hey, hand me the other one over. <laughs> but a more primary, a more fundamental meaning of one is the totality, the whole, the whole ding ding doodle, the one, the absolute, the one as absolute. And this is the way God, in a non-religious or philosophical context, is usually referred to as the one thing, the one life, the one mind, or simply absolute. The absolute, the totality of things. So, the metaphysical, philosophical concept of the relationship of the one to the many is that God has to be imminent. The source, as a creator, must somehow be reflected in everything that has been created by it. So God is in you, and you, and you, and this, and that, and everything else. But this philosophy has been pushed to the side, first by the Catholic Church and later by the Protestants, because it's such an ancient concept that it smacks of paganism to many Christians and Catholics. The pagan idea that God is in nature, that God is nature, that God is also in the trees and the wind and the sky and the water, and that God is in the horses and the lion and the puppy dog and the bully goat and that God is in the snake uh oh and the snails and the mosquitoes and the cockroaches that God is in the microbes and the germs and the bacteria and the viruses uh oh you see the problem? See the difficulty? And yet, that's the challenge. What is not divine about bacteria? Right? I remember when I first started coming to the Hawaiian Islands in the late 70s, always to Maui, always came here. I remember laying on the beach on the south shore Near, near what is now Wailea, McKenna Beach, Kihei, down in that area, listening to the U.S. military bombing an island just off the coast of Maui called Ko'olave. Ko'olave was obviously uninhabited because the military decided that it would be a great place to practice bombing. And so you could lay in the beach and hear bombs going off in the distance. 
huge explosions now, 50 miles away in this island you could barely see on the horizon over there kaboom and westerners Americans Howleys never really thought much of it at all but the native indigenous people of Hawaii the Polynesians were horrified and a Howley might say to a Hawaiian, wow, why? What, what, what upsets you about that so much? It's a deserted island. Nobody lives there. Well, the Hawaiian might respond, it's deserted because you're bombing. We're not allowed to go there. But more importantly, everything is sacred. You're dropping bombs on a living thing, this volcano. This island is alive. It lives. It breathes. And you're bombing it and destroying it. You're killing it. And it hurts my heart. And so in shamanism, in the Prisca Theologia, or the ancient teachings of all societies and cultures around the world, is this mystical idea that everything is sacred, that everything is divine, everything is holy. And even if you drop a bomb out in the test a nuclear weapon out in the middle of Utah where there is n nobody living or out in, the, out in that damn desert someplace, you may say, well, it's pretty barren, nothing grows out there. Well, that's not true. Things do grow out there, and the critters do live out there, but even the sand itself and the rocks and the minerals to a mystic are sacred, holy, a reflection of divinity, and that God lives in the mineral kingdom as well as in the plant kingdom as well as in the animal kingdom as well as in the human kingdom. And so the church has pushed this ancient philosophy off to the side for fear that if you see God in everything, rather than just some things approved by the church, that you're back to being some kind of pagan or, or heathen. And uh, what's the point of reading scripture or listening to it read to you or going to church on Sunday if if everything is holy. So religion, especially Christianity, is based on the idea that some things are holy and some things are not. Some things are of God and some things are of Satan. Some things are good and many things are not. They're bad. They're evil. And they've set up this irreconcilable struggle between good and evil, between God and the devil, good and evil, God and the devil personified, good and evil personified as a being called God, some form, and a being called the devil, this guy in the red underwear, some form. You've taken spirit and made it into a form, You've taken the one thing and bifurcated it into good and evil. But it creates its own problems. 
better to deal with the philosophical conundrum, the challenge, that evil is within, the, like goodness itself, that the light and the shadow are both within the one thing. And that that is reflected in its creation, in every seemingly separated thing. One of the really rich metaphors for this that I found very helpful and offer now to you is the idea of a pendulum where the bottom of the pendulum swings to and fro, back and forth, an ebb and a flow that represents the polarities of the yin and the yang, the positive and the negative, the vibration of energy in form, the polarities, the peaks and the troughs, the seasons, the in-breath and the out-breath, the expansion and, and the contraction. That's the bottom end of the pendulum representing the world of form, the physical world. But the top end of the pendulum, you'll notice, is fixed around a single point. And if you remember your geometry, a point, by definition, occupies no space. It is simply a location in the dimensions of space. Might be two dimensions, might be three dimensions, but a point is a fixed location. It occupies no space. So a pendulum that descends from a point is coming into physical existence from a place outside of, behind or beyond the physical, metaphysical. The top of the pendulum is metaphysical, for it exists outside of time and space. It's a single point that represents at once eternity and infinity because it stands outside of the limitations of space and time. Unfixed, I'm sorry, fixed but unmoving. Fixed and unmoving. <laughs> That's the best way to say that, maybe. All right. And that would represent your God principle or the creator or the source, the sorcier, the sorcerer, the source, the creative uh, source of all things, the absolute, the one. And the bottom of the pendulum would be the many, the one and the many. Pendulum's a very nice example of that. You put that pendulum swinging not only back and forth, but around and around. And we go to a three-dimensional version. The area that is swept out by a pendulum that goes around and around would be a cone. And the path around and around and up would be as it goes around and up, would be a spiral. And this is found throughout mysticism, the spiral staircase that goes up. Jacob's ladder is really a spiral staircase <laughs> because you 
we've got this back and forth, but the degree of back and forth gets less and less as you move toward the unification at the top. Again, the one and the many. So the church has tended to cast aside, and our culture has been denied, in many cases, uh, exposure or access to the concept of God, imminent God being in all things, every created form being sacred, because of a fear that it's pre-Christian, it would be uh, too much like the the pagans, the heathens, <laughs> if you will, of old, who denigrate God by seeing divinity even in the snake, even in the snail, the slug, the cockroach. And that's not regal enough for the church. Right? Church wants the 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 God on high, the God transcendent, the the one over many, as Plato said, the the um, totality of God. But even then, the church has enculturated humanity to think of the one God still as separated. Separated from the shadow, from evil, from negativity, from disease and war and death and hunger and and all the adversities of life. Separated God from that and separated divinity, God, if you will, from its creation. So that God is a being, a form not merely an energy, a presence, or a consciousness, but a guy with a body that lives in the clouds, in the sky. Very, very far away. And although in some places Christians will say God is everywhere, they don't really mean it. Because, again, they don't see God in the shadow, only in the light. They don't see the shadow as ultimately being part of the light, that there has to be shadow in order for there to be light. There has to be light in order for there to be shadow. Both things are true. The the relationship of good to evil, the reliance of good upon evil and vice versa, is again really challenging philosophically. But if you understand you can't have shadow without light to cast the shadow, <laughs> then you can understand that good needs evil. And the idea of evil existing outside of God or anything existing outside of God ultimately doesn't preserve God or make God holy. It denigrates God. What kind of God is not whole? What kind of God has something existing outside of it? Some would say, well, then this is just irreconcilable. Well, not really. It's it's not really. 
it can be reconciled. Or we can make an approach to that by considering that divinity, God, is not a shape or a form, but an everywhere equally present energy, a consciousness with certain qualities like will, love, intelligence, that manifests itself in a way that requires a more complete kind of a definition, a definition of divinity, of oneness, of wholeness, that is both imminent and transcendent. In other words, divinity imminent as God is in everything. The transcendent definition is and everything is in the one. You need to understand to begin to reconcile this conundrum of the one and the many that we need this more complete definition. It's not one or the other. God is in everything, like paganism, in the snake, in the slug, in the snail, in you and in your enemy, in the wind, in the sky, in the mountains, in the plants, in the animals. God is in everything, and every seemingly separated thing is in God. It's not this or that. How about this and that? How about both of these concepts? God imminent and transcendent. Now God is the one and God is the many. And God is the one and the many. It's spirit and it's matter. And so this unification, this idea of and or human beings tend to see or and separation so much. Well, it's this or that. Well, it's you or me. Well, you're with us or against us. Well, I'm sorry, but it's either right or wrong. It can't be both. Yes, it can be both. Right or wrong, good and bad, especially in form. What we need here is a concept of relative truth versus absolute truth. This is one of the benefits of being educated. This doesn't occur to people that haven't been exposed to higher education, that there is something called a relative truth, a matter of degree. True for me, but maybe not for you. True for you, but maybe not true in every situation. Or true to a certain extent or a certain degree, and at that point no longer true or somehow less true than it was before. And so people that have not been exposed to this information, they haven't been educated in philosophy, especially when they're stressed or frightened, will tend to believe that all truth is absolute. It's either right or it's wrong. 
It's either good or it's bad. It's either of God or it's evil and of Satan, which is an anagram for saint or Santa. (laughs) Figure that out. Why would saint and Satan be the same word? Why is alone, the word alone, we mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, why is the word alone so close to all one? When they seem to mean the opposite. Because the opposites are reconcilable. You know, opposites could be things that are very different and very far away, but they can also be two sides of the same coin, can't they? Well, heads is not tails, and therefore, (laughs) how could they be part of each other? Well, they're two sides of the same coin. They're really not all that different. That's a wonderful phrase, by the way, two sides of the same coin. It's very deep, very profound when it comes to reconciling opposites. Unifying what seems to be not only different, but in opposition. Substituting for all of the ors in your life, born of these fear-based absolutes. Well, I'm sorry, it's either this or this. You're either with us or against us. It's either right or wrong, good or bad. Stop. How about this right and wrong? It's good and bad. Depends on the situation. Depends on the context. Now, in the spiritual realms, there can be, theoretically, this sense of absoluteness, the unification, the oneness, the wholeness, where God can manifest itself as these apparently many separated forms and still remain unified. This is where we need to talk about the one and the many from the point of view of a a kind of a middle, what's between the one and the many. What comes third, the third element, but stands as number two between the one, spirit, and the many physical forms. And the mystics of all cultures and all societies repeatedly come back to love, as consciousness, being the magnetic force that allows the one to manifest as these many seemingly separated forms, I say seemingly separated forms, without being diminished or even affected in any way part of this fundamental challenge of the one in the many is how can God create the universe without being 
diminished by it or even affected by it. And it's through the magnetic nature of love that the one can express itself in such multitude of diversity, not just seemingly separated forms, but unique and diverse forms. Diverse, I'll say, I should say it the other way, diverse and unique. Not just separated, not just multiple, but different, and not just different, but even unique. Each of us has fingerprint evidence and DNA proof of our individuality, our uniqueness. And so, too, the scientist will hasten to assure you that no two blades of grass are the same color green, and no two grains of sand on all the beaches in the world are exactly the same size and shape. It would seem that the universe bends over backwards, God the Absolute, to avoid being redundant, as if every grain of sand, every blade of grass, and yes, every human being, exists for the purpose of containing a unique blend of divinity. Particular characteristics that in combination no other grain of sand, blade of grass, or human being could contain. Otherwise, it would be redundant. You are not redundant. You are unique. You're very special. Just like everyone and everything else. <laughs> is unique and therefore very special and arguably essential. So, it's pretty fascinating to speak of the one and the many. The one is both imminent in every one of the many things and yet the many are transcendent in the one, and both things are true and reconcilable through love because of its magnetic nature. Okay. I spoke about this a few months ago, but certainly uh, bears repeating this example of pulling water out of a tank. And every bucket of water I remove from this tank of water diminishes the reservoir. But if you look at electromagnetism as contrasted to the water example here, as in a radio wave, it doesn't matter how many radio sets are turned on. Turning on a radio does not diminish the signal to your radio. 
we could all be sitting in a group with our own radios and our own headsets and one by one turn on the same radio station. And no matter how many radios get turned on, the signal to your radio is not diminished or affected in any way because it's everywhere equally present, unlike the water that is contained in a tank and every bucket you pull out diminishes the whole. That's the power of electromagnetism, to be everywhere equally present and to be consumed, if you will, without being diminished. The only thing that diminishes electromagnetism in the physical world is space. Outside of space, in spiritual realms where there is no space or time, it it's understandable that electromagnetism would not be diminished because there is no space through which it could be diminished. So it's everywhere equally present. This is the mystical ocean of love, the mystical ocean of consciousness. The totality, the biggest thing imaginable, the whole enchilada is electromagnetic. That's what. That's that's why love. You can feel the electromagnetism in love. You can feel the magnetic attraction or the repulsion. You can experience the polarities, the electromagnetic polarities, in love. So it's the magic of love as consciousness, awareness, or sentience that allows this one thing to remain whole, though it expresses itself imminently in a reflection of apparently separated forms. Now, what are you going to identify with? Because we're in a world where virtually everyone identifies almost exclusively and totally with themselves as the separated being. Separated, alienated, alone, rather than all one, alone, reaching out for contact, for love. When the the hilarious irony is, you are that love. You are that magnetic nature. You have it within you. If we cease to seek receiving love and instead give away the love that we are through kindness and compassion, you generate a flow. The current begins to move. The turbine spins and the current moves. <laughs> when we initiate it, we want to, we want to, many of us, reap the harvest before we sow the seeds. We want to receive love and kindness and then we'll give it away. Well, if they apologize to me, then I'll apologize to them. 
doesn't work that way. It's not receive and give. It's give and receive. You must give away what you want to receive. I know it's a little confusing to say, well, if I wanted to receive it, I wouldn't wouldn't need it. If I had something to give away, (laughs) I wouldn't need to receive it. And I'm sorry, magnetism doesn't work that way. There really is no giving or receiving. It's an everywhere equally present field or matrix, an organized field of love that allows the one to express itself as the many without being diminished. Remember that example, the difference between pulling buckets of water out of a reservoir each time diminishing the total. That wouldn't be much of a god, would it, that's diminished by its creation. As opposed to broadcasting, where no matter how many radios are turned on, the signal remains just as strong and undiminished because it's magnetic. That's one of the nicest allegories that I can offer you in beginning to either wrestle with or massage this idea that we're discussing today of the one and the many. God imminent, divinity, the creative source in every separated form, and God transcendent, every seemingly separated form, human, animal, plant, mineral, in the one thing. Religion also says, you know, animals do not have souls, and animals do not go to heaven much less plants and minerals. What room is there in heaven for the physical mineral world? This is confounding to religious people. But if you saw it just as a holographic movie or a reflection, what most people think of as physical dense reality, if you saw that as a reflection of the one, that As scientists now understand, since Einstein's E equals MC squared, the the whole material world is energy bound up in an appearance of form, but not very solid, mostly space, mostly energy still. It's just slowed down to the point that it takes an appearance called the periodic table. It takes the form of hydrogen and helium all the way up through iron and and uh, various metals that we can make into uh, steel. And these strong, solid alloys building bridges and skyscrapers out of this strong metal that's still 99.999 out, 12 digits, Space, 99% space. Well, what holds it together? Energy. What kind of energy? Magnetic energy. Magnetism is important. If you really wanted to, I say this a lot, and, I, and most people never really follow follow up on this suggestion, but if you did, I think you'd be really smart. Buy a really simple like 
junior high school book on electromagnetism, on electricity and electromagnetism. Or electricity and magnetism. How about if I put it that way? Electromagnetism. Just the the basics. What is what is magnetism, and how's it related to electricity, and maybe even a little bit about how's that related to broadcasting energy like radio and TV. That's called RF or radio frequency energy. How are they related? Get yourself like an eighth grade science book. Go to Radio Shack or go to the library and get an eighth grade science book on electricity and magnetism and you'll learn more about spirituality than you've ever known. Spirit is energy. It has polarity. It has amplitude and frequency. It's magnetic. <laughs> Learn about it. Right? Learn about love and consciousness and, and inner peace from an electromagnetic point of view. And you'll make these huge leaps in resolving your questions and conflicts about the universe and your role in it, you'll have a much better sense of who you are as a reflection of the one thing. Okay. All right, let's see if you have some questions or comments about this. I know it's a little profound, a little pithy, but that's okay. Let's break it down. Any comments or questions you have, if you're participating live today on the Internet, you can use that text box in the lower left. And after you're done typing your comment or your question, put your name and city in there and be sure and hit the submit button. And if you're on the telephone, press star 2 on the telephone touchpad and you can uh, participate that way. That'll raise your hand, and then I can unmute you one at a time. So um, let me go back, and we'll see who's on the phone. Don't see any hands. We do have a few people on the phone today. Let me go to the webcast and check a couple of things here. They're real good attendance today, live. It's real gratifying. They appreciate you being here again. You can always listen on the uh, uh, to the podcast, and that's great. But I love having you here live. Well, a few people checking in here. We've got in La Habra, Carol Pastel. Hello, Carol. Uh, Judy Craft in Arcadia, which is. Uh, pretty close to Pasadena, and she says it's raining today, raining in L.A. Great class. Thanks for sharing. See you in a couple of weeks at the retreat. Thank you, Judy. Looking forward to it. In Irvine, Bob Fiegel. Aloha, Michael. Great class. Have a magical week of peace. Thank you, Rob. In Los Angeles, Patricia Vega. 
says Aloha Michael and Dream, great class, wonderful class. She says, I think that all living things, plants, animals, and minerals are always changing and evolving just like us. Also, great idea, eighth grade electricity book. Yeah, I, I'm, I, it certainly worked for me. I mean, what can I tell you that I that I don't know from personal experience? Just a little bit of uh, understanding of Ohm's law, for example. There's only three elements in Ohm's law. There's amperage and voltage and resistance. And it's a simple uh, formula and to play around with the idea of amperage as an energy and voltage as a force and resistance pushing back. <laughs> that, too, is a rich allegory for the Trinity, for the will of God, or the lower correspondence, human mentality, the love of God, the Christos, the Buddha nature, the electromagnetic part, which would correspond to voltage, electromagnetic force, and in man, the emotional nature. And so-called Holy Spirit, or the mother aspect, the intelligent activity, this would be the resistance or the, or the pushback corresponding to the physical body in man. Ohm's law is taken right out of the Trinity, right out of the divine Trinity. It's really cool the way it works. And, and while we talked about the, uh, the, uh, the pendulum today, remember, the, I've talked about it so much, but it's so important. The, the trinity is bar magnet, where you have the polarities of the positive end and the negative end, but the middle element, the second element of the trinity, the sun, so-called, of these positive and negative polarities in the bar magnet is Again, the magnetic field around it. It means that it's not just a positive end of the bar magnet and a negative end. They're not just opposites, but like two sides of a coin, the magnetic field, the heart and soul of the bar magnet, the magnetic field unifies those polarities into one thing. So that everywhere on the bar magnet and every point in space around the bar magnet is both positive and negative to a relative degree, not in either or. You know, if we can if we can just break out of this absolute either or duality uh, that handcuffs, limits our thinking, and begin to see the middle way, the third way, the relative um, degree to which it's this and that rather than this or that. Not only does the one and the many come into focus, and you get a better understanding of where you are in the relationship to all other things and 
the one divine source as well. But all kinds of philosophy really uh, rolls over and, and uh, exposes itself to you and uh, uh, it becomes so available. Once, once we begin to work with, I think these, these, these two models, the pendulum and the bar magnet, can take you a long way. It certainly has for me. So we get that little simple book on basic electricity and magnetism, electromagnetism, the relationship of the two. All right, something really simple and fundamental. And then consider what we said about the pendulum as well. How the, the bottom end corresponding to the physical world is dual and has its polarities, its yin and its yang. And yet at the top of the pendulum is fixed, eternal and infinite, unmoving and unified. There's your one, you see. The pendulum and the bar magnet, two very, very rich and uh, wonderful par paradigms, models for you. In Los Angeles, Virginia is with us. Uh, hello, Virginia. She's going to be here in a couple of weeks. I can't wait for the Maui retreat. We had a little sample, I was saying, uh, yesterday on the beach in Lahaina, uh, the Maui Mystic Island Festival was uh, is, is being held this weekend, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. And we spoke on mindfulness there yesterday, had a great time. And um, Virginia says, thanks for another informative and inspirational show or class. Look very much forward to coming to Maui in February. Uh, it is a show, it is a class. I'm a radio guy that does classes so <laughs> but sometimes I call this the 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 show as well and uh, I hope it uh, entertains and informs both Lorelei in Tucson Arizona Aloha Michael great show as usual thank you very much you're very welcome Lorelei and thank you for being here and uh, if I go back to the phone, I have callers, but I see no hands raised. So let's just uh, do a little visualization exercise, and we'll call it a day. What do you say, huh? Again, because you may be listening after the fact by podcast, there's no telling what you might be doing right now. Driving a car operating heavy machinery. But if this is a good time for you to put it down, whatever it is you happen to be doing, get comfortable, find a nice big overstuffed chair, or sit cross-legged on your pillow, wherever you happen to be, get nice and comfortable. And take a couple of slow, deep breaths to oxygenate yourself. And each time you exhale, you can do this now. Each time you exhale, create and sense a softening, a feeling of letting go, 
a feeling that you're safe and can relax. And after three or four nice, big, slow, deep breaths, just allow your breathing to fall back to its natural rhythm. Turn it over to involuntary autopilot. Allow your body to breathe itself all by itself. And simply watch your breath. The breath and witnessing your body breathing itself has traditionally been understood as a wonderful, excellent way to bring yourself into the present moment. You never breathe from the past or from the future. I mean, you were breathing in the past and you will be breathing in the future. (laughs) But the breath itself can only happen in the now. The only thing that's real is this eternal instant now is all there ever is. So to watch your breath is to be here now. And so use that breath like a metronome. Simply watch it. Don't be the breath. Be the witness of the breath. Detach. Take a step back. Place your attention gently on the bottom of your nose at the very point where air enters and leaves the body. And Allow me to guide you, but for now, simply watch your body breathing itself. As you feel letting go in the neck and the shoulders, If you move your attention for just a moment to the space around your ears, you can feel that area sag or droop as you relax the scalp. And it's often surprising, oh my goodness, I didn't realize I had that much tension in my scalp. So you feel that space around your ears sag as you let it go and feel that letting go throughout your body. From one end of the spine to the other and all the way down your legs to the bottom of your feet. And then gently place your awareness back in the base of the nose. I'd like you to imagine yourself in a beautiful, natural, outdoors place. It might be a wilderness might be a beautiful garden. You may be high in a mountain or deep in a meadow. In a great open space. A field full of wild flowers or a cool, shady, forested place. Or maybe as we were yesterday, sitting on the beach in the sand just 
10 feet from the shore of the ocean. Or near a little lake, a pond, or a mountain stream. And allowing my voice to go with you, imagine the sounds that are associated with your image of nature, this place that you're imagining yourself sitting. And I'd like you to imagine uh, a gentle impress of spirit precipitating down upon you. Like a gentle rain, but it's not water, it's spirit. An energy that feels like love. That feels like peace. An energy that feels like everything is okay. Even if your mind keeps telling you that it's not. Allow yourself for just a few minutes to feel this gentle precipitation, this gentle impress coming down upon you, comforting you, and reassuring you that it's perfectly okay to allow yourself to feel content. As if this gentle spiritual impress gives you permission to consider that everything is right on schedule in your life. That you're really doing exactly what you're supposed to be doing as you're supposed to be doing it. What what if it felt, just for a minute or two here, like you're right on schedule, that your best is good enough and You're doing really well. Allow yourself to feel that reassurance. And feel it deeply. Not just upon the surface of your body, but as if you can feel that feeling in the very core of your being. That you are all right. You're okay. That like everyone else, you have light and shadow within you. Good times and some bad experiences too. Solutions, but also some problems. And accept that. Be okay with that. Dare to risk feeling satisfied and content. Usually, when these feelings come upon us, we're so judgmental of ourselves that we push them away as if we have no right to feel content. We don't allow ourselves to feel satisfied, much less fulfilled, for fear that 
will then stop growing, will stop evolving, will, will stop getting better or aspiring to be more. If you allow yourself to feel some contentment, some satisfaction right now, as if your best really is good enough and you really are a good person, better even than you may know. And just allow yourself for a little moment in time, a minute or two, as I guide you through this process. Allow yourself to feel that contentment, that satisfaction. You you might find that, in fact, it actually motivates you. Like a reward. Some sort of acknowledgement like a trophy or a plaque or a certificate that says you did a great job, wouldn't you want to do that again? Wouldn't you? You really think satisfaction is going to cause you to stop? Maybe it'll, maybe it'll promote your growth. Maybe it's a, not an ending, but a great place to begin to accept. that you're doing a really fine job here. And that intention is everything. Buddha said intention is karma. It's not what you do so much that generates karma. It's not what you say so much. It's not simply your thoughts so much it's the intention behind it all it's your identity and motive you might say well they don't give awards for good intentions well the world of man may not I think it does sometimes maybe often but the spiritual realms Beyond the veil, always reward intention. In kind. If your intention is negative and hostile, the universe reflects that by law. If your intentions are kind and loving, regardless of the outcome in form, regardless of the appearance of a result, if your intentions are gentle and kind, that's what comes back around. Kind and gentle goodness in your life. So forgive yourself for what may appear to be your failures and go to your intentions. What are your intentions? Intention is will. Free will or willpower. Intention. The purpose and the will. 
the so-called father aspect of divinity is will, purpose, and power. That's in your intention. And then the love of the one is the consciousness. The second aspect of the Trinity will the father aspect love as consciousness the son aspect father son and then holy spirit the mother aspect is the activity the behavior worked out in physical death but all of it the love and the intelligent activity comes from intention, will, purpose, and power. So be gentle with yourself as you remind yourself of your intention. In life, in career, in your relationship with money and things, prosperity in general, in your personal relationships with other people, and for that matter, with the plant and the animal kingdom, the mineral kingdom too. And in the way you treat yourself. Have the best of intentions. And let that be enough. If you make a mistake, if you screw up, if you fail, forgive yourself. Take a breath and come back through the heart to remind yourself of your intention be gentle with yourself and kind to yourself know that just as there is a universe within you physically countless millions of life forms living upon your body and within your body on a microscopic level, a universe of life forms with symbiotic relationships such that you could not live without their presence. Just as there is a universe within you, you are an inseparable part of the larger universe, the one verse, the universe, the one thing and its many forms. They are inseparable. The one is in the many. And the many is in the one. And both things are true due to the miracle of love as magnetic consciousness. 
cannot be diminished. It cannot be separated except by an appearance of light in form. Feel that connection. Feel that truth. Feel that wholeness now. Honor it. The beautiful, beautiful concept, fundamental in many ways to all philosophy. The one and the many. We've talked a lot in this class today about the one. We've talked a lot about the many. The word and in the middle is just as important. It's not the one or the many, you see. It's the one and. Again, the magnetic and harmonious nature of love. This and that. Use it in your life. Wherever you find yourself facing this or that, right or wrong, good or bad, winners or losers, substitute and. This and that, right and wrong, to varying degrees. Mostly right, a little bit wrong. Sometimes what's wrong for you is right for me. And vice versa. It's relative in form. Maybe ultimately, spiritually and absolute, but in form, things are relatively true, often a matter of degree. Sometimes individuals vary. Sometimes, often. <laughs> That's the point, isn't it? What's your intention? That's the first ray, the first aspect, will, intention. And then love, the second aspect, the magnetic and harmonious agent. And then the many, the working out, the intelligent activity of seemingly separated forms. Work with this simple this triune nature of reality, this trinity of will, love, and activity. Father, Son, and Mother aspect. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Father, Son, and Mother will, love, intelligence. Corresponding to your mental, emotional, and physical self. To Ohm's law, as amperage and energy, as voltage, a force behind the energy and resistance, the pushback we get, because humans don't like change. And the universe has its inertia. The body at rest tends to stay at rest. At one in motion, tends to stay in motion, resisting in both cases change. Ohm's law, 
basic electricity taken right from the divine trinity itself. Work with the threeness of things. The one and the many. One and many. The magic is in the and, the middle bit, the love, the magnetic nature. Feel that, even more than think it. Just feel it in your body. And whatever has come up for you, whatever you have realized as a result of working with this concept today, tell yourself, affirm to yourself that you will bring that gently with you back into the world. It'll be easy to remember and apply in your life to make it richer and more wonderful, to give you more peace of mind, to allow you to feel less stressed and more settled in the world. And then reorient yourself, remembering, bringing to mind an image of the room in which you sit. Remind yourself what you'll see in just a moment when I ask you to open your eyes. Take a nice, slow, deep breath. Fill your lungs. Hold for a moment as you peek, and now as you exhale, uh, open your eyes, wide awake, alert, rested, refreshed, feeling fine, back in the room. And uh, Sunday afternoon, or if you're in Europe, I guess Sunday evening, or if you're in a podcast, Lord knows what time of day, (laughs) or where you are, or what you're doing, but thank you for being here, thanks for listening, watch for the newsletter every week, usually comes out on Thursday or Friday, forward the newsletter to your friends, if you're not getting the newsletter, it's a single click, And then your first name and your email address, that's all you need. Just go to theagelesswisdom.com, after the W's, theagelesswisdom.com, and you'll see a button right below the Maui Retreat link that says Free Newsletter. Click on that, add your first name and your email address, and you'll get the newsletter every week with a link to each Sunday's Ageless Wisdom Mystery School. And those of you who are subscribers to the premium audio at FocusedPassion.com, you'll find out what the upcoming program is in in the following week for you guys as well. And as always, thank you. Mahalo. Appreciate you being here. Have a wonderful week. Be gentle, love life, and take care of each other. This is Michael Benner. See you next week. Aloha.